On April 10th, 1912, the largest man-made object ever constructed at the time, the mammoth and undisputedly exquisite Titanic, set sail from Southampton, England. Its construction was the culmination of nearly a century of developments in naval architecture and design. Its conception was seen as a bridge into a wholly modern era. There were over 2,200 souls on board. It was to take some of them home, some of them far away from theirs, to start over. And for some, it became a workplace. It was then everything magical, but also everything tedious. Its most famous historian, Walter Lord, called it a small town, and its sinking, the death of one. It never made it to New York, of course, but its legacy, its lessons, its aesthetic, they've never left us. It's everywhere. The ultimate symbol of man's hubris, right? Contrary to popular belief, the White Star Line never called this ship unsinkable. Many people thought it was, though. Titanic now lays 13,000 feet below the ocean's surface, but what has proven unsinkable is its hold on all of us. I'm L.A. Beatles, and this is Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. Get comfortable, settle in, grab a drink, perhaps. Let's talk about the ship of dreams. Thank you for being here for episode one. I anticipate a learning curve, but bear with me. I'm beyond excited to be here. Uh, In some ways, I feel like I've been headed here for nearly 20 years. So I want to start with a story and some context that will sort of illustrate what this podcast will be. Day broke over the Atlantic at around four in the morning on April 15th, 1912. Seems early for light, but it couldn't come early enough this day. The first glimmers on the horizon broke through what had been a moonless and freezing night, but those rays would provide no warmth yet. Fourth Officer Joseph Boxhall sat at attention, as he had been for the past three hours, in the stern of a wooden lifeboat filled with, as best we know, a few other startled crew members, a steward, a cook, women, children, and a third-class male passenger who had quote-unquote stowed away to accompany his crying family off of a sinking ship. They all sat huddled, frozen, limbs unmovable, faces pale as ghosts. Until there was more light, they wouldn't even know if the other lifeboats were anywhere near them, or lost adrift on what now seemed like an endless ocean. Boxhall was exhausted, had already been exhausted from long shifts on board. In fact, another surviving officer, Harold Lowe, said a few days later that they were so tired as men of the sea that whenever they did sleep, they died. But Boxhall remained stoic as he scanned everything in his line of vision, over, over, and over again. 
he thought it numbing, really, to imagine that only a few hours earlier, this thing he'd felt as, quote, a glancing blow with ice, some small black mass, also his words, he'd seen from the deck, had put him here, drifting in a small boat upon the North Atlantic, had pulled so many people into the sea, had swallowed 46,000 tons of steel, swallowed the ship so large it had taken him almost the entire truncated voyage to learn just how to navigate its hallways and decks. Shock was not word enough. A few faint traces of the sun coming up, and then another reflection on the water. Dare he think it a ship? Was it still just the stars? Light, light, light. It was all about the light. If you have no light, you have no hope. And Boxhall knew that. Boxhall had been a bearer of light this whole night. At first firing emergency flares from the Titanic's bow, some white, some green. There's been debate about the color, but a box of rockets found on the ocean floor during an expedition have us pretty sure they were actually all kinds of colors. He cursed silently the damned fools aboard what he perceived as a nearby ship. A light out in the distance, something he felt sure of. He later said that even the captain of the Titanic saw it, asked him to morse code to this ship. Boxhall's recollections would soon enough be the first traces of a building scandal regarding that mystery ship. But that night, no one could yet even imagine what lay ahead. That night, all they knew was that it was silent, this enigma of a vessel nearby. Its lights eventually waned. When asked to take charge of emergency lifeboat number two, launched 7th that night from the port side, he made sure he had light. A seaman named Frank Osman, assigned to the same boat, thought that the box of rockets tucked inside had made it there by mistake, that it should have been a tin of biscuits. But no. Boxall had put the little bin of rockets in there very much on purpose. Earlier in the night, he'd been hopeful, quickly surveyed the bottom parts of the ship, some of its insides, and had found no damage yet. But not long after that, he had run into a mail clerk coming up from the mailroom, a man who hurriedly conveyed that the mailroom was filling rapidly with seawater. Bags and bags of mail, lest we forget Titanic was Royal Mail Steamer Titanic, began to float up, bloated. And that's when Boxhall knew there was real trouble. But to be clear, no one thought there would ever be this much trouble. Seasoned crew like Boxhall assumed that the ship, which was built with precision and with no spared expense by Harland and Wolfe in Belfast, would serve as its own lifeboat. They'd base that assumption not only on the ship's famously touted watertight compartments, but also just the sheer disbelief that this floating city, a self-contained system with everything from quarters that slept its almost 900 crew members deep in its belly to a Parisian sidewalk, cafe, and Turkish baths and grand dining halls up near its shoulders, that all of this could sink. 
even Captain Smith, known as the Millionaire's Captain, for his popularity on this Europe to New York route, which was frequented by the likes of the Astors and the Guggenheims. He had said a few years earlier, in 1907, already that, quote, shipbuilding is such a perfect art nowadays that absolute disaster involving passengers is inconceivable. Whatever happens, there will be time enough before a vessel sinks to save the life of every person on board. And he had actually seen this in action already. He had captained the Titanic sister ship, the Olympic, on its maiden voyage. Uh, At one point, the Olympic had already collided with another ship, had an accident, and in that process, two of its watertight compartments had filled with water, and all of the passengers had made it safely off off board. In fact, a lot of them had been in the dining rooms when it happened and didn't feel much impact. So in Captain Smith's mind, this technology of this massive ship being its own lifeboat had already been proven. But no, not this time, thought Boxhall. Instead, here he was, moving his arms in the frigid air, imploring women in his boat to row. He lauded them for it later, this effort. And that was because this was a big deal at the time. And particularly if the woman in question was a first-class passenger. Um, There's actually, side note, there's actually a deleted scene in the 1997 film in which Thomas Andrews, the shipbuilder, is showing Rose and Cal and Ruth around the gymnasium. And the gym instructor offers Ruth, you know, nose high. She's the one making Rose marry awful Cal for money, all of that. He offers her a turn on the rowing machine and she puts her nose a bit higher and scoffs, saying there was not likely a skill that she'd need less. Well, it's actually a pretty accurate interaction. Uh, Women of a certain social stance would have never imagined that their life would lead them here to an open boat, on open water, in the charge of working class men who they'd likely been told to fear their whole lives. Class equalizer? Maybe in the moment. We'll talk a lot about class and caste and gender, but I can't get too ahead of myself here. It was Mrs. Mahala Douglas uh, who was in Boxhall's boat and actually she was married to the heir to the Quaker Oat fortune, interestingly enough. Uh, She had one of the most grim but beautiful descriptions from that night. She said, I watched the boat go down and the last picture to my mind is the immense mass of black against the starlit sky and nothingness. Grim, but beautiful. And that combination is going to come up a lot as well. Boxhall lit up the night with his pyrotechnics. That's the word he used to describe the lights. Through the night, he kept going. And as it turns out, it was at least partly because of his lights that the rescue ship Carpathia knew it was on the right path to the survivors. And as daylight broke more and more, streaks of oranges, rich reds, purples, all turning to blue, as if these sore eyes had not seen enough to shock them, it was then that they first could see the extent to which they'd been enveloped in a veritable field of ice, after all. 
on one overturned collapsible nearly 30 men and one woman from third class who had watched her sons washed away just hours before. They'd all been perched all night, balancing by centimeters to stay afloat. The most gruesome sort of dance. And at break of day, they were discovered, dispersed into other boats, where, as able seaman Frank Evans later testified, one of the ladies there passed over a flask of whiskey to the people who were all wet through. These people were nearly perished, he said, but shared the liquor between them. I like to think if I'd been there and been lucky enough to be in a lifeboat, that might have been me, the woman with the whiskey ready. I mean, what else? What else can you do in that moment? Margaret Brown, later, much, much, much later known to the world as the unsinkable Molly Brown, had something rather literary to say about that morning, what she called the flood of light, how the, quote, sun came up in a ball of red fire, and then it revealed that on every side there was ice and what she called icebergs mountain high. As daylight broke, I saw them, said Boxhall, a little bit more simply, of the icebergs, anthropomorphized already in one night, these creatures of ice. Osman, the seaman in with Boxhall, thought some of them looked to be a hundred feet high and dirty, menacing. They expected to see bodies everywhere. They all braced for it. But instead, emergency lifeboat number two saw just one body, a man who looked as if he had, as Boxhall said, fallen asleep with his face just over his arm. Not hundreds, not the whole of the 1,500 people lost, but just this one body at the break of day and all this ice. And the iceberg, it has become just as much a part of the culture around how we talk about Titanic. I can't tell you how many people sent me the link back in April of this year to watch Bo and Yang play the iceberg on Saturday Night Live. This thing that stood in the ocean, it's a character here. And largely because it's so ripe as an analogy, you know, tip of the iceberg and such. And when I was first conceptualizing this podcast, my husband told me that I should call the podcast 80-20. On an iceberg, maybe 20% is visible, or visible, I'm sorry, maybe way less. The point is, most of it is underwater. The meaty parts, the dangerous parts, the parts you don't know about. It extends farther and deeper than you'd ever think. And most of the damage done by it is done below the waterline. And in a 1970 interview, actually, the survivor Edith Rosenbaum Russell, who, as many of you probably already know, um, there's a lot to unpack about her, and she probably deserves her own episode, but she summed it up best. She called the collision, just a little jar, nothing at all, followed by a second light jar, nothing of consequence. And this is accurate because this is how most of the first class passengers perceived the collision. But then she recalled that one man said, quote, look at that. There's an iceberg and it's a whopper because, you know, there's one eighth above the water and seven eighths below. 
and this bloomin' things all the way over the top of the ship. She thought nothing of it, she says. And then she says, quote, we picked up the bits of ice and most of us played snowballs. But that seven-eighths, whoever that man was that she ran into, he was right. It was all about the seven-eighths. And I mean, it wouldn't have worked as a podcast title, I don't think, because there's no ship in it in that 80-20 phrase. But it works as a title for this introduction episode because that's exactly what Titanic is. You know maybe 20%, but there always seems to be 80 more. And look, I have multiple books arriving at my house per day. It's a running joke at this point. My children walk around my house talking about how much mommy loves Titanic. (laughs) I'm reading so much about it. I'm dreaming I'm on it. No joke. Every night. And I still haven't made it much past the tip of that proverbial iceberg. James Cameron uh, did the preface for an edition of the U.S. Senate hearings on the sinking. And these took place right after the Carpathia got to New York with survivors. And we'll end up talking about those proceedings quite a bit. But Cameron, in this preface, he said that the story of Titanic isn't in these actual lines. It's all between them. And he's so right. And that's a part of what this podcast is as well. As a researcher, as a storyteller, I'm trying to piece together some of the stories we don't know as well, or maybe we've been mistold over the years because tragedies seem to, of course, propagate myths. And another way that the 80-20 model works is that while 80% of this podcast will be researched historical narrative, and albeit, I hope, a very entertaining and enlightening one, um, and again, hopefully, conversations with experts, um, it's also 20% about culture and of culture. Because I mean, who am I kidding? The way that Titanic is portrayed in art and culture is a huge part of why we talk about it. The 97 movie was just one of several big cultural events that reinvigorated interest in the ship over the years. But it's a big one. And it's part of the reason I'm here. I was 13 years old when it came out. Full disclosure, a few weeks ago, I got a Make It Count tattoo on my left wrist. You can go see it on my Instagram. And over the years, as with most things, for me and for everybody, the lines begin to blur when we have the facts of the thing and then the reimagining of the thing, which is why to do this podcast, we have to talk a lot about memory as well. But take Officer Boxhall, for example. Despite having spent most of the rest of his sea career reluctant to talk about Titanic, At age 73, he served as a consultant on the film adaptation of Walter Lord's A Night to Remember, which turned into a 1958 movie that, just to note, you should definitely watch. It definitely influenced Cameron and a whole generation of storytellers. But Boxhall is 73, and he returns to the scene, quite literally, How do you remember something like that 43 years later? Or we could talk about Lawrence Beasley, a second-class passenger, and he was a man, obviously, who had survived, 
And if you were a man who survived and you weren't crew, you were asked to explain why. You really, truly, by many accounts, spent a good portion of your life from then on out explaining why you lived in the place of a woman or a child. Beasley wrote a memoir about the disaster right after it happened, and it was published in 1912. Super quick turnaround. In 1958, when that movie, A Night to Remember, was being filmed, there's this story that Beasley, who would have been 80 years old at the time, keep in mind, entered the set and tried to go down with the Titanic this time. Like, he tried to stay on the ship as the sinking scene was being filmed. Supposedly, the story goes... Beasley was spotted by an actor who knew who he was, so the whole thing was interrupted, uh, and he had to leave the Titanic dry again. Was Beasley trying to path-correct his own life by dying the right way, even just metaphorically? Had he lived for 46 years with the guilt that perhaps wouldn't be shaken without reliving the tragedy? Or was he just trying to relive it because the whole event had become such a part of his life and legacy that he wanted to literally submerge himself in it again? Who knows? Who knows if this story is even true? When you read things like the survivor transcripts and affidavits from those Senate hearings, which I just finished doing, it's a lot, (laughs) um, These people become real. This sinking took over two and a half hours, as most of y'all already know. And these people spent every minute of that time making decisions, hedging bets, self-soothing, soothing others, balancing fear and hope, and ultimately bearing witness to images and sounds that would haunt them so intensely that some went on to take their own lives or live the rest of their lives as a recluse, or simply to seep forever in a kind of PTSD that no one even understood or talked about at the time when mental health just wasn't, unfortunately, a thing. People call this sinking a Greek tragedy, this slow-moving morality play that took almost three hours And it's hard not to buy into that analysis because it's a huge part of why we go back to this story. We humans, we like our narrative. And as a historian, I try to remember that all narratives are in some way crafted. They don't just exist in the moment when tragedies are happening, but they are still essential for understanding things. We see ourselves in the emotion of a narrative. We put ourselves into it. And that's how we examine things. That's how we process things. In 2003, James Cameron actually released a documentary called Ghosts of the Abyss. And in it, he goes back down to Titanic with Bill Paxton and a whole team of researchers and scientists uh, with these amazing roving underwater cameras um, that they... Um, operate from subs. And the painter Ken Marshall was also on board that expedition. Marshall's works were actually 100% the template for the 97 movie. I mean, they're the paintings that Jim Cameron went into 
uh, the meetings with the executives to pitch the movie. But even if you've never seen the movie, I imagine you've seen Ken Marshall's paintings. They're these immersive recreations. They almost look three-dimensional. They put you in the water that night. And what he said about why we as a culture still obsess over the ship really struck me. He said, quote, she was so cheated. She was so beautiful. And so much energy went into building this creation, the epitome of human engineering and maritime architecture at that point, and to have it taken, stolen, just four days out of England, that he says, that's the odd attraction. Um, It's ghostly, it's ghastly, it's oddly such a beautiful and romantic image. Another reason at least I think so, that we never stop analyzing Titanic is that so much of it seems avoidable. And I'm not just talking about missing the iceberg, which I know is a discussion that has a huge technical side to it and implications, and I do not and will not ever pretend to be an expert to that end. But I mean also the breakdown of communication that seems to have accounted for loss of time and the loss of a lot more lives than needed to be lost, even with inadequate lifeboats on board. It was a lack of urgency without malice, but consequence nonetheless. Second officer Lightoller launching boats half full because he didn't even think it was a dire situation at the beginning stewards and officers and seamen telling passengers, particularly first-class ones, that nothing was actually wrong, and often just a lack of information too, as was the case with third-class, many of whom barely spoke English or spoke none at all and couldn't understand what the officers were even saying, let alone whether or not any danger was to be had. And many third-class passengers had never even been on a ship before now. It is also inevitably that eternal lifeboat question. Not just that there were not enough, or if there had been enough, would everyone have made it, but that they were handled by men inexperienced with a new davit system and with this new ship. There'd been no drills, or maybe a few with a few of the seamen. The reports kind of vary. I was trying to explain this to a friend the other day, and I used the analogy of my kindergartner learning fire drills. She came home from the first one distraught from the chaos of it. She hadn't been expecting it. She didn't feel like she knew where to go. She didn't even understand whether there was a real fire or not. But my first grader, he'd done them a dozen times before last year, so he knew where to go. And he thought it was a pretty smooth process, and he wasn't scared. I think another question is always about heroism, right? And over the past 110 years, we have all tried to parse out who was a hero that night and why, and what the definition of a hero even is in a situation like that. And for me, it's alluring, but also very scary to think that Captain Smith, for example, might have actually just proven to be incalculably human and not acted quickly or efficiently. Maybe he had a panic attack. I mean, Cameron's version of him seems to imply that. Or Harold Lowe, depicted often as this hero officer because he was the only person 
to row a lifeboat back into the debris field to look for survivors, to row through the bodies. But a passenger named Daisy Minahan also famously attested to him telling the women in his boat, quote, the best thing for you women to do is to take a nap. I was reading recently about the evacuation of Saigon uh, from the flight attendant perspective in an excellent book. This is a tangent, but bear with me. And that excellent book is Come Fly the World, which is written by Julia Cook. You should definitely check it out. But there's an account of men trampling women and children to board these flights out of Saigon, of stewardesses coming up for air after bloodying themselves heroically, there's the word hero again, to pull people up on the tarmac only to look around when they got back inside the airplane, that it was a sea of men on their flight. And is it possible that some men on the Titanic behaved that way the night of the sinking? Yes. Do we want to think about that? Probably not. No, not really. But I don't think we can pretend that some people didn't showcase very base level human emotions and actions that night because they surely did, and not just along gender lines. For example, there are about 20 different accounts of how the lifeboat known as Collapsible Sea was launched. Some people remember it launching from an eerily empty deck, and some people remember fearing for their lives because a revolver was pulled on a group of men like jamming the boat. Some women remember being violently thrown in. Some people remember seeing absolutely no women at all right there. You could write a book on that one boat. I don't know, maybe someone has. I'm sure someday somebody might. And honestly, I also remain shocked at how much culture still calls the sinking a mystery. I think in order to get to play it out, constantly speak of it, relive it, people want to make it a mystery, even though we obviously know precisely what happened. Here's what happened. A little before midnight on April 14th, 1912, a Sunday, this massive ship, which took forever to slow down, which took forever to turn, hit an iceberg that its officers and its lookouts had not spotted in time, and a sputtering but sharp cut along her side made her sink. But it just felt like the world was too technological, too modern already at that point for something like that to happen. Titanic's role as the 20th century's first modern tragedy, first massive example of how man's use of technology might cave in on itself cannot be underestimated. And it seems that whenever it's difficult to process something gruesome, we tend to, as a culture, mystify it, ghostify it, because if there is a supernatural quality, if there are enough questions or what-ifs or conspiracies then maybe man didn't actually make so big a mistake as to speed the largest ship ever built out in the Great Banks area in a field of known ice with only lifeboats enough on her to save less than half of her passengers and crew. This is how it is with the lost colony of Roanoke, for example, which 
I've also studied at length. The most obvious example for the disappearance of a small group of Europeans with absolutely no farming or survival experience in a brand new place, no supplies, no food, living essentially right next door to a group of Native Americans that were already wise to the manipulative and violent ways of the British, death. Death would be the most logical conclusion. Uh, Yet scholars and amateurs alike devote whole books, whole organizations, whole events still held to try to somehow find the colony to prove that it survived for at least a few more years beyond that. I came across an episode of a ghost hunting show recently that claimed to pick up phantom handprints and an EVP recording from a drowned child at the Titanic Museum in Branson. To be clear, they were saying a child who drowned on the Titanic. But this museum was in Missouri and had been built, I think, in the last 20 years. (laughs) But none of this is new though, and it it never seems to dissipate. Um, Immediately after the sinking, there were survivors and just random people all over who claimed to have had premonitions about the sinking. Uh, One of the people who perished was a man named William Steed, who had pioneered almost the entire field of investigative journalism in Britain. I mean, his undercover work literally raised the age of consent there. But he was a controversial figure, owing at least in part to his avid participation in the field of spiritualism. And he claimed to be a medium. And in the days after he died in the North Atlantic, his daughter eventually claimed to be translating messages from him across the watery grave, across time, space, the great beyond. I think people are constantly looking for more mysteries. They're digging back to find new ones still. Uh, last year, in the early days of the pandemic, I remember I saw a complete to-do online about a supposedly new revelation regarding the coal fire that had burned on board the Titanic. And as many of you know already, that's not new. That fire was known to Thomas Andrews, It was known to countless people who worked on that ship, and that fire was out before it hit the iceberg. But something like that, it creates a fun mystery, right? I think it's also important to address why we study and obsess over Titanic still now, in an age when mass casualty, climate events, accidents, shootings, these things, it pains me to say, are happening almost every day, and we're also hearing about them almost every day. For example, the recent condo collapse in Florida, that was also a catastrophe that in many ways happened in slow motion as they looked for survivors. And there were heroes and villains cast in these roles via the media almost immediately with tales of faulty construction, warnings that no one heeded, death, destruction. But it's certainly that specific situation will never remain in the American consciousness like Titanic. And why? Why is that? I want to try to answer that question. Is it possible that so many of us love to dissect this story because, ironically, this one thing happening in 1912 now seems 
safe in comparison to what we deal with daily? Or do we all just secretly want to be on that beautiful ship? See what happens to our characters when the morality play kicks in. Is this why people host last night on the Titanic dinner parties that are cosplay? Do you host one? If so, will you invite me to yours? I will come. Um, But the thing is, too, the almost romantic, wistful way we memorialize the sinking now hasn't always been universal. One of the things I'll I'll do across different types of episodes is break down how the ship has been remembered and how its use as an allegory or a myth has evolved. Uh, One example is memory in Ireland. Harland and Wolfe, remember who built the ship, wanted nothing to do with memorializing the wreck for almost a century. The ship had been built with the blood, sweat, tears, and in several cases, entire lives of Belfast men. And the fact of its complete destruction just four days into its first trip That just wasn't something that the company wanted to bring attention to. It was pure heartbreak more than anything. And in 1987, Robert Ballard, who was one of the men who discovered the wreck of the ship a couple of years prior, he traveled to Northern Ireland on his book tour, but he said he felt no interest there, felt it was nowhere in the place's consciousness. I mean, to be fair, the country had collectively much more on its mind, of course, as it would be another 10 years before the ethno-nationalist conflict known as the Troubles would even end. There was a very, very long time then when the memory of the Titanic and its cultural significance wasn't a given there, not even in the place of its literal birth. But in 2007, Ballard was contacted by the city of Belfast, which was planning a 100-year commemoration for 2012, and he was drawn into a project that rebuilt a major portion of Belfast with the old Titanic shipyard as its center. And the Titanic Belfast Museum opened that year as well, and Ballard ended up working the Belfast project into one that he was producing with National Geographic about protecting the wreck from salvagers. Sounds like a lot to keep up with, right? <laughs> it's, it is. It's an onion. Um, it's layers never end, which is why this is a podcast with multiple episodes, um, many of them, hopefully, um, with lots of time to peel some of this back. Um, And then there are the stories the ship keeps telling, like Adolph Sawfield's leather case full of perfumes. He was a chemist, and that was plucked from the ocean floor by RMS Titanic Inc. about 20 years ago. And one vial, when opened, was still so fragrant with the scent of roses that it inspired more than than one modern perfume maker to recreate a heritage scent, uh, one of which was sold on QVC in 2012. Here's the thing. There are a thousand voices, a thousand sources, a thousand compilations of thought in this history. Um, Last week, for example, excuse me, I spent hours poring over one volume of academic essays from the early 2000s. Um, It's about the ship and myth and memory And really, I'm not exaggerating when I say every single one of those essays could be an episode in in itself. 
I recognize my voice is just one. And for some, this is a religion. And I recognize that. And I like what Bill Paxton, RIP Bill Paxton, says at the beginning of Ghosts of the Abyss. He says, the story of the Titanic is very personal to each person who hears it. Almost like a biblical story. This giant ship, all these people in the middle of the ocean, this iceberg, the warnings, and what would it have been like to be there on that fateful night. I've also realized, as I'm sure many of us have, that the knowable in all of this sits permanently at about one third on the tank. Two thirds of what happened that night just isn't knowable. Two thirds of her voices were completely lost including a guarantee group of nine men from Harland and Wolf, who we can only imagine spent the entire duration of that sinking trying to keep Titanic afloat, including firemen and engineers who we realize now must have been working until the final moments to run pumps, moving the water, helping the ship stay level as it went down, including hundreds of immigrants who watched all of their earthly possessions dampen and then soak. So many of them not knowing until the ship began to turn at a frightening angle beneath their feet, not knowing till then that there was even danger. One thing that struck me as I was reading the Senate hearings and doing research on those is that Whether they all realized it or not, the people that gave testimony in those proceedings, largely first class and crew, they made a consensus that in the process of the sinking, a huge chunk of third class were not present on the boat deck. They were not present for all these little morality plays that the surviving first class passengers would go on to tell. They were, many of them, the third-class passengers, definitely down inside the ship until the end. Whether or not gates were locked is almost beside the point. Many sources point to the realization that crew members ask that those people stay down. There's even evidence to suggest that some of the crew told and might have believed that third-class passengers, that a rescue ship was actually already on the way and that they should continue to wait in their section further down in the ship and away from the sight line of the loading of boats and all of the frenzy. First-class passengers might have sincerely thought that the third-class were all off in lifeboats too, at least the women and children. So it's not necessarily malice, but those people were kept below. And another thing, Frank Osman, the seaman in with Boxhall, remember him? He was pretty low on the totem pole as a White Star employee. His speech wasn't elegant. He was decidedly working class. But in 1912, in the hearings, he pretty much perfectly describes the sinking. From what we know of it now, having seen the wreck, Um, including its breaking into two pieces. But no one believed him at the time because of his station in life. And the Senate hearings even concluded that the ship went down in one piece because of officer testimony that to that end. So Cameron made another documentary in 2012. Um, If you can't tell, I'm (laughs) 
big fan of, of everything he does. Um, but it was called The Final Word. And he attempted to critique his own film. What did it get wrong? How could newer computer models show us how the ship really landed on the ocean floor? Why is the debris field shaped the way it is? And all of it's interesting, but to me, the most interesting part comes at the end. When Cameron asks his table full of naval experts and historians what they would have done if they were the captain one minute after the iceberg. And someone suggests mattresses could have been used to line holes. Someone suggests that every single lifeboat could have been collected and used as a giant plug, essentially. Someone suggests that a group of crew could have been sent off to use the two and a half hours to fashion lifeboats. I personally think there's some merit to that one. But Cameron seems to make eyes bug from heads when he suggests that every man, woman, and child on that ship could have been ferried over to the iceberg itself where they could await rescue. That thing's not going anywhere. That's what he says. And I mean, he's right about that. My kids, um, they play Roblox sometimes, and we discovered there's actually a Roblox Titanic game. I'm never shocked by anything anymore. But it recreates the length of the ship in that signature Roblox fashion, the boxy shape. And as a character, you're trying to get on a lifeboat before the ship sinks. So pretty standard fare for a game. And recently, I was watching my kids watch a game channel play through it. That's a thing, too. (laughs) And I overheard one of the players, who was a dad playing alongside his son, say something about surviving the Titanic because he was going to go jump on the iceberg. So there you go. This podcast is going to take us back to the ship's construction, all the way forward to where it rests now, 13,000 feet below the ocean surface. And it's mired in a whole new plane of controversy now. The questions about how to preserve it or not preserve it, to mine artifacts or not, how nature is reclaiming her. Um, An organization called OceanGate just this summer made an expedition down to her to check on her condition. You can follow them on Instagram. The access that we have now is just insane. And perhaps Vauxhall would be beyond amazed then if he were to see what we can do now, even under the sea, how lights can operate that deep under the extreme pressure and illuminate once again the ship he stepped off of with nothing but a box of rockets. That light found its way back to Titanic. There are so many stories. Um, There's Molly Brown, who actually never even went by the name Molly, Um, Father Thomas Biles, who heard confession in third class throughout the voyage and recited prayers, clinging to the railing until almost the instant he was swept underwater. The baker, who claims to have survived in the water for hours and never gotten his head wet. The military aide to President Taft, Archibald Butt, who was renowned for his elaborate parties in D.C. and was traveling in an effort to treat his ongoing depression. But he was traveling with his roommate, the painter Frank Millet, who in all likelihood actually was his partner. Uh, Whole groups of young people from the same small towns thrust out into the world, keeping watch over one another. Hundreds of widows left in Southampton, two of whom reportedly died from the shock of their loss. 
I also have a long list of people I want to talk to and with any luck, get on here. Historians that I've seen weeping in footage talking about their experiences seeing her from a sub window. Engineers who've studied the wreck, ones who've created the technology to dive to her. Descendants of survivors, the makers of art inspired by her. If you're any of these people, or if you're just someone who loves Titanic, let's talk. I want this podcast to be interactive. Uh, you can reach me very easily on Instagram at unsinkablepod or by email at unsinkablepod at gmail.com. You can also go to unsinkablepod.com to learn a little bit more about me if you want, <laughs> and also to see a source list for each episode. Um, there won't be an extensive one for this one. This one was written mostly just from an amalgam of my experiences and research, um, but more specific episodes will, I will be citing uh, my sources um, in depth. So you'll be able to see that. Um, and if you have any ideas for episodes or you just have a cultural reference or a Titanic moment that you want to share, please do. Um, one advantage of having Titanic as my sort of personal brand is that friends and family send me pictures of everything they encounter. And the most common thing I hear from them is that once they start to look and to notice that Titanic is everywhere. Um, oh, and if you don't mind your message, if you send me one, if you don't mind your message being read on air, let me know because I would love to share some. The next episode, which will drop in two weeks, will be on one of the Titanic's most controversial figures, the mustachioed Bruce Ismay, who pretty much owned the damn thing, but got on a lifeboat and turned his head away from the ship as she was sinking. Some people think history has been too hard on him. I guess we'll find out. <laughs> and I'll leave you with this. Um, Arthur Rostron, lauded captain of the Titanic's rescue ship Carpathia, said this at the hearing. And I think it's really enlightening, and given the name I chose for this podcast, resonating. He said, the ships are built nowadays to be practically unsinkable, and each ship is supposed to be a lifeboat in itself. The boats are merely supposed to be put on as a standby. The ships are supposed to be built, and the naval architects say they are, unsinkable under certain conditions. See you next time.